This podcast series is based on a book called Beyond Reasonable Greed, Why Sustainable Business is a Much Better Idea by Wayne Visser and Clem Sumter, read by myself, Wayne Visser. Banking, Financing a Healthy Herd We have already touched on banking twice in this podcast series, but the industry as a whole deserves a separate section. Lions say that money makes the world go round, and then turn the saying into a self-fulfilling prophecy by controlling the purse strings. It is one of the great ironies of the feline economy that those who most desperately need money are denied it, or made to pay an exorbitant price to get it. Most banks consider the poor as unbankable, and focus their appetites on high net worth individuals. The latter are usually shareholders as well, so they don't ask questions about where the bank invests its money so long as it hunts down the best financial returns. In these circumstances, the bank is an exclusive preserve for lions, with the Lion King, the CEO, occasionally gracing the front page of the financial press to report another significant increase in earnings per share. In the elephant economy, however, equitable access to finance is high on the list of priorities, as is ensuring that the banks invest their money in sustainable activities. An example of financing a healthy herd is the growth of the community development banks in the United States. They have adopted the express objective of providing financial services and investment to marginalized communities in order to aid their upliftment. These banks have financed over $2.5 billion worth of community economic development, with the five largest having made loans in excess of $400 million since their inception. The South Shore Bank of Chicago is a classic example, the heartening story of which has been featured by the Harvard Business Review. Back in the 1960s, some of its employees were bankers by day and community volunteers by night. They would have deep discussions at the Eagle Bar about the problems of inner cities and what to do about them. One of these idealists took over the leadership of the bank in 1973 in a bid to save it from closing and to prove that a commercial bank could be a vehicle for regenerating impoverished communities. The bank not only survived, but has since lent more than $130 million to 7,000 local business people with a 98% repayment rate, the same rate of repayment that has been achieved by the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. They have also trained more than 2,200 people, found jobs for another 2,700, built upwards of 9,000 houses, and dispersed more than a million dollars in low-interest energy conservation loans. And all of this has happened in a community where one-fifth of the population lives below the poverty line. South Shore talks about the secret of its success being a return to old-fashioned banking, in which banks have local areas and they owe those areas service. Social banks are the European equivalent of America's community development banks. Their services are intentionally aligned with social and ecological goals and projects. As a sector, these banks are estimated to have financed more than 5,000 social economy projects by investing in excess of $100 million. 
To understand what is meant by a social economy, we can look to the example of Triodos Bank. Triodos is a European bank that gives financial support only to projects and enterprises which create social and environmental value. They operate in fields such as renewable energy, social housing, complementary healthcare, fair trade, organic food, and farming and social business, all areas which are traditionally underfunded. The beauty of their system is that as an elephant-friendly bank depositor, you have the choice as to what human or ecological initiative you wish your money to be directed towards in the form of a loan. You may also choose to pass on an interest rate discount to the prospective projects you are supporting by requesting a lower interest rate on your savings. Triodos also finances fair trade and microcredit organizations in developing countries. Another issue that concerns sensitive elephant types is the potentially perverse effects of interest on the most vulnerable sections of the population. While charging interest on loans dates back more than 4,000 years, so do critiques of its negative impacts. Often the problem arises where destitute borrowers fall prey to loan sharks who charge exorbitant interest rates, thus setting off a downward spiral into the so-called debt trap. This practice of excessive interest is the usury that most of the world's religions have condemned since antiquity. Often, the hidden poison that kills borrowers is not the rate itself, but the fact that it is compounded over time. In other words, charged not only on the original loan sum, but on accumulated interest as well. This has the effect of institutionalizing exponential growth of interest rates. To illustrate the potentially devastating effect of this creeping interest, one penny of debt incurred at the birth of Jesus Christ with a compound annual interest rate of 5% would have grown to the cost of one ball of gold equal to the weight of the earth by 1466. If repaid in full in 1990, the sum would have purchased 2,200 billion such balls of gold. One of the most visible and tragic examples of the casualties of the compound interest trap is the third world debt crisis. According to the United Nations, at the height of the crisis in the late 1980s, the $1.5 trillion in debt repayments by developing countries was three times greater than the original amount owed in 1980. Despite these repayments and more since, the total debt of developing countries is still estimated to stand at more than 1 trillion US dollars. Moreover, more money is flowing out of developing countries to service the debt than is being pumped in through international aid. A more effective treadmill could not be devised. Even though we mentioned the problem of the discount rate in previous podcasts, it bears repetition here. Discounting is really the opposite of compounding, just as a penny today gets unimaginably large when compounded over a long period of time in the future, so a treasure of a million pounds received in a hundred years' time appears to be worth a trifling amount now after being discounted. Hence, if the return on keeping a natural resource or investing in a social project happens to be long-term, it makes economic sense to exploit that resource now or cancel the project in order to invest the money elsewhere. 
This theoretically leads to economically rational extinction or depletion, an absurdity which ecological economists Daly and Cobb lay bare by asking when to kill the goose which lays the golden egg. German professor Margaret Kennedy also argues that interest is a key component of pricing. She calculates, for instance, that around 50% of the prices paid on basic goods and services in Germany are hidden interest costs paid at each step of the production process. On this argument, a hike in interest rates will directly add to cost-push inflation, negating the dampening effect on demand-pull inflation. She also shows that the growth in national interest payments in Germany is outstripping the growth in gross national product. Finally, she claims that interest causes income to trickle up, citing the evidence that the poorest 10% of German households pay out net interest every year, while the richest 10% receive net interest. No wonder, she says, the rich are getting richer at the expense of the poor. In reviewing these criticisms of banking and interest, we are not suggesting that an elephant economy will wipe out either or wish to. However, ways will have to be found to counteract the negative effects of interest and turn financial institutions into forces for positive change. After all, money is the only commodity where the price rises the poorer you are. Imagine going into a shop to buy some bread. You ask the owner the price and he replies, How much are you worth? If you demonstrate that it is your new Mercedes that is parked outside his shop, he gives you a fat discount. If, on the other hand, you are unconvincing about your wealth, he charges you double the normal price. Is that justice? Yet in the world of credit, that is precisely what happens on the grounds of the greater the risk, the greater the reward. So it all depends which side of the coin you are looking at, the lion's head or the elephant's head. One of the schools of economics that may have the most to contribute to the shape-shifting of financial institutions is Islamic economics. Since the Islamic tradition embodies serious concerns about the negative distributive justice and equity effects of financial interest, Muslims have gone a long way towards exploring alternative institutional mechanisms collectively called Islamic banking. The specific methods for implementing Islamic banking have centered around equity-based approaches. For example, Mudaraba is essentially a joint venture between the bank and a partner, with both contributing to the capital of the project and sharing the profit or loss. Another approach, Musharaka, requires that all the capital for an investment is provided by the bank in return for a predetermined share of the profit or loss of the business undertaking. The emphasis in the Islamic banking approach is therefore very much one of risk sharing between lenders and borrowers. This stands in stark contrast to the Western banking principle of the borrowers being required to pay fixed interest rates regardless of the success or failure of their business venture. So let's be innovative. Why not have a lower rate of interest that serves as a floor, but topped up by a profit-sharing arrangement, which becomes the premium payable for the extra risk? Whatever actual mechanisms emerge from the shape-shifting, we can be sure that financial institutions of tomorrow 
will no longer be the self-serving kitty of well-to-do lions. The rest of the jungle wants a share of the action.